Welcome. I'm your host, Roger Tucker. I'm a native of Newark, New Jersey, and each week I'll be interviewing artists, historians, authors, and other cultural thought leaders to discuss the cultural impact and influence that Newark has had and continues to have on their lives and work. For the past 35 years, I continue to be inspired by Victor's public and personal art practice in Newark, New Jersey. Victor is the co-founder of Algyra, a center for contemporary art in Newark. He and Carl E. Hazelwood founded Algyra together in 1983 as a nonprofit center for contemporary visual art to promote the work of emerging and underrepresented artists. Algyra was a vital hub for creative excellence in Newark's downtown arts district for over three decades. Victor served as its director for 33 years. Victor's professional and charismatic leadership has and continues to have a profound impact on the artistic landscape of Newark and the tri-state region. Artists of the African diaspora, women, and other underrepresented artists are exhibited, engaged, and given global platforms that had never been realized before he landed in the city of Newark. Victor's visual art practice is heavily influenced by the anti-colonial politics of the Caribbean and by the intellectual powerhouses of that period. These include extraordinary writers and activists like Martin Carter, Franz Fanon, and Walter Rodney. Since 1996, Victor's series of paintings and drawings are his attempt as an artist to negotiate the roots of identity and a terrain of loss and desire. He believes people of the African diaspora have survived because of their extraordinary resiliency. Victor recently retired as co-director of Express North, an initiative of Rutgers University in Newark and community partners focusing on arts, entrepreneurship, and social justice. Victor received a BFA from Pratt Institute, Brooklyn, New York. He has exhibited widely throughout the Northeast United States and has been included in exhibitions in England, France, the Dominican Republic, and Cuba. His work is in the permanent collections of the National Museum of Fine Arts, Havana, Cuba, the National Collection of Fine Arts, Guyana, the Newark Museum of Art, the Montclair Art Museum, and the New Jersey State Museum. Welcome, Victor. Glad to be here. We are meeting on April 16th, 2021. The world is in upheaval. Black Lives Matter is now an extraordinary global movement, actually, demanding racial and social justice. COVID-19 continues to rack the world's health and economic realities like no other pandemic in 100 years. So, Victor, how has your life and your art practice been informed by these tumultuous events over the last year? Thanks for that question. Um, there are two sides to this um, this dark event, if you will. Uh, first, you know, it was pretty much about protecting myself, pretty much about leaving Newark in the middle of March. Um, suddenly, um, sort of, sort of cloistering myself and adjusting to this new reality um, of COVID. And that experience in some ways um, was both 
you know, frustrating. Um, it felt pretty much confining. Um, but it did a couple of things that I think also upended, I mean, in a sense, not upended, probably that's too strong a term, but it did a couple of positive things. Let me just say this. First of all, myself and Cicely had to adjust to the reality that we're going to be around each other most of the time. That's a major, that's a major adjustment. You know, it's usually, usually, um, We'll be, you know, I'm away for eight hours and uh, we see each other and we had some, we have a lot of breathing room, but that adjustment, um, you know, it was um, not seamless, but I think we weathered it well, being around each other, adjusting to the, you know, the fact that we're, we're in the same space 24-7. and that did a lot for our, our, our relationship in terms of uh, a, a couple of artists living and working together. Um, it also, because I live on the Lenape Trail, which is essentially here in West Orange, and there's the reservation, you know, 20 minutes away, I suddenly became aware of nature in a way that I had not been paying attention to, you know, all of a sudden there were, uh, there were these, there was this awareness that all these trees around me and we live in, we live on a property where, in fact, we live on two adjoining properties where they're, they're large trees, this sort of a mini, mini, mini forest sort of. And, um, and Cicely is a, is a gardener. So it, the summer of 2020, I had an awakening. And the awakening was this sense that trees were part of my everyday reality. In fact, it, it, it has been a really interesting journey because Cicely and I started to read a book called The Overstory, which is about trees. Well, it's about more than trees, but essentially what it did was it raised my consciousness about trees as um, and nature in general as uh, sentient beings. They're, they're living, breeding things that are part of our universe. It raised my consciousness about the fact that, um, you know, we tend to perceive trees and nature as utilitarian. And this started to sensitize me to the movement that has to do with protecting our environment. I mean, we lost a neighbor behind us just removed, just just cut two trees down, and we were horrified. I was horrified. I mean, I, that's how sensitive I, 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 I can't say anything to the neighbor because it's, it's, it's as he perceives, this is his property. And even though there might be an ordinance in place, who am I to, you know, I, you know there's this balance between being neighborly and, and this commitment, this, this emerging commitment to the environment 
as expressed in the life of trees. So, um, and then Cicely and I did a book together, which is on Amazon. You can find it. We like we created a seventy, I think it's a seventy-five page book, or you can call it a booklet. And it's um, <laughs> it, it's a, it's we both did eight paintings, watercolors, uh, uh, you know that had to do with, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's rooted in, in the, in Cicely's readings. I mean, uh, about the, you know, book of hours. Um, and she just suggested we were both offered exhibitions at, um, at a gallery upstate Geneseo, um, uh, at the university upstate, um, in Geneseo by uh, a friend and curator by the name of um, Cynthia Hawkins, Dr. Cynthia Hawkins. And we decided we would rather do a collaboration. The collaboration resulted in this joint exhibition, the creation of these watercolors. They got developed as a book. And we have an interview. Um, and it's, on, it's available on Amazon. It's inexpensive. It's probably about 15 bucks. You can order it. So, and then, um, because I had so much time on my hands, my studio practice accelerated. I'd been working for over a year or two on a project called the Misogyny Papers, um, which was um, a response to a body of... of, um, I would call them, they're not antique, but I would call them vintage magazines and newspapers from the 50s or 40s that had been converted by some occupant of the property next to the cottage where we live. And we own that too. That was our studio. Um, he had taken these images of women and mostly women um in fashion magazines, you know, Harper's Bazaar, you know, high-end magazines, and some magazines that were, some of them were questionable, but he had converted this into a narrative, an odyssey that was unmis unmistakably misogynistic. And, and, um, and so this became part of a, my my work became part of a response to that. Um, so so here it was. On the one hand, this is awakening of you know awakening to nature around me, and it was remarkable about this is that the cottage we live in. I think it was it was um, built in 1936, maybe the 1930s. So it's got this kind of craftsman quality about it windows all around so it's meant to experience sort of the exterior interior experience so um um i mean as i speak to you i can see the ridge the mountain ridge and we live on first mountain we live on you know so so every place you go there are these vistas in this house where where you are aware of place landscape 
So I ended up, much to my surprise, doing a, and this is a kind of a sidebar, I ended up doing an eight feet by 25 feet landscape. And then I did, I did a, a eight, two eight by 10 paintings. I did another eight, but I mean, it, 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 it seemed to me I was going between this real concern about misogyny and the lens through which a patriarchal society sees women um, and my response to where I was. So I have to say, in terms of my practice, this being quarantined or self-quarantined has resulted in this explosion of, of creative activity, um, both in terms of the collaboration that I did with Cicely and in terms of the um, um, my a new interest in landscape, you know, um, I I don't know. I mean, if there's a landscape painter in this family, it's uh, it's Cicely. Her work. I mean, she's she grew up on five acres in in you know in Central Jersey and loved nature, loves nature, loves gardening. But I arose to the, it was not a challenge, but I rose, I, she didn't know what I was going to end up doing, but I suddenly started, I rediscovered landscape, you know, so, so, um, um, so this has been a, an incredibly uh, fulfilling creative moment for me in terms of, in terms of, my studio practice in terms of my work. I mean, I've, I, I, I'm still working on the misogyny, um, uh, papers. Um, I've got a body of work dealing with that. Um, and, and, and then there's this parallel track of my interest in landscape. Again, I'm looking at landscape again with, with, with new eyes. And so, um, but I'm also, I'm also mindful of the context that you framed earlier at the beginning of this, that, um, that in some ways I'm, I'm in a bubble here, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping my head down and, 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 and trying to make hay while the sunshine, take advantage of the fact that I'm, most of my creative life has been spent supporting other artists. Um, and that was necessary. Like, and this is not a unique experience. Many, many artists have had to do other things to support their family, to support themselves. So this is the first time in a very long time I've had so much time to spend in the studio, but I'm, I'm, I'm also listening to what's going on around me in terms of the larger picture. The fact that, you know, over half of a million people have died from COVID. The fact that this thing has touched everybody. The fact that we, you know, there have been stressful times when we are so over the past four years, uh, you know, we're, we're, I mean, it was the, the stress of living under the, the, the previous guy in the White House. The stress was palpable. I mean, it was just, 
visceral. We actually, I think I was in some ways mildly depressed to get up to a world, to wake up each day to a world in which this man was at the helm, you know, of, you know, the most powerful nation in the world where I was trying to exist as a black man. I had my art to turn to, you know, I could be introspective, but, but the, you know, but the, the harsh reality of, of, of the larger world, you know, it was just outside my front door, you know, and, and I, you know, I was, I was aware of it, but I tried not to, um, I tried not to make it the center of my of my my universe yeah yeah this this idea that you're sharing of how do we as human beings how do we as you and i men of color black men navigate through a world that is both beautiful and nourishing and dangerous and 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 chaotic and reckless so this is the the navigating that we continue to do into our our uh, later years here. And, um, and as you said, art is the anecdote. It has always been the anecdote for, for mankind. It has been personally anecdotes for you and I. And I think about the, you know, that, that term art heals, but art also changes minds. And so we as creative people are responding to the beauty and the chaos, and we get to sort of document it for the world, for our grandchildren, for anyone who might be interested, even in this conversation, what was going on on in both of their minds on April 16th, 2021. So again, I, I really value this conversation that we're having at this point in this time, because it's very important. Um, I thought about one of the principles of design or the principles of art, uh, when you were talking about the misogyny project, and your landscapes and your watercolors. And, you know, you know, as both educators, we know that with the principle of art, the idea of contrast is very important. So we, we have been navigating through a world of contrast and making the most of it through our art and our art leadership. Let's talk about the not too distant past. What brought you to, to Newark? Um, Work, just simply and straight work. I, by the way, I should say that what we're navigating is no longer, is not new for black men or yeah. black community. Just to, to, to ground it in a little bit of, of history, Du Bois talked about the double consciousness. You know, so it's always, it's always a matter of uh, this dynamic situation where you have to negotiate, um, you know, um, this issue of race and this issue of your individual humanity and the humanity of your community. So to get to your question, what brought me to Newark now? Um, I arrived in... Um, I think it was 73. I arrived in, um, 
in Brooklyn, New York City, in Brooklyn. And uh, for me, Brooklyn, Flatbush area where I was, I stayed with my, first with my sister, my older sister, then my, my, my brother who was a bit older than her. He's George is probably in his early 80s now. And um, I didn't like it. I didn't like Brooklyn. It was not the Brooklyn that we know today. The Brooklyn that I arrived in seemed to me a kind of, at least culturally, a kind of replica of the Caribbean. Mm. There were all these, there were all these, um, you know, Caribbean stores. And people were trying to sort of recreate their experience at home and. Um, I'd never lived in an apartment before. Uh, apartment living didn't appeal to me. The, the, the you know, um, moving up and down in elevators, you know, alternate parking, uh, the subways, I mean, were, were noisy and filthy. And it was the 70s. I think New York was in a kind of uh, economic recession. Mm-hmm. It was dirty and gritty. Um, what we think now of Soho, uh, Soho was just bombed out, you know, factories, uh, it used to be a place that just, now it's a totally different. Right. It used to be dark and dangerous. Exactly. You don't want, you know, now it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the kind of, uh, is the place to go Soho and, and Chelsea and, and, you know, uh, this is so, so, so my experience in New York was not particularly good. I mean, I, I never seen people eating food out of the garbage, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, yes, we had poor people, but poor people always had something. I mean, we had, we had people who were literally, you know, official, they were, they were beggars. Beggars would come to my parents' back door and you know, I was have a little package for them or some money or something, but I'd never seen such extremes. I mean, I guess what I'm describing to some degree is culture shock. Sure. And you're talking about coming from Guyana, correct? I'm talking about coming from Guyana. I'm talking about coming from, which is a tiny, tiny, tiny country. It's only about 83,000 square miles. Probably fit into one of these larger states. Um, um, so, so, so. I couldn't find um, a job to support myself and some friends, one friend who was, who was now passed, um, uh, he was working at U.S. Steel. At the time, U.S. Steel was in carpet, I believe. That's before it crashed, before U.S. Steel scratched. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I was looking for a job. I'd take anything as a job. And so I came. I was an artist. At home, I'm known as an artist. I won a national award, but that's uh, like a. Um, you're, I was a big fish in a small pond. I was, yeah, I was a big fish in a small pond, and so I eventually ended up in uh, Newark. And I'm going to say this, and I, this is not hyperbole. I I fell in love with Newark. With Newark. To me, had, and this is going to sound, was a beautiful thing that had good bones, but somebody had beat her up or beat him up. 
and and nobody took care of of so so I was re- re- arriving. One has to imagine that this is the 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 rebellion, if you will, was in sixty seven. Sixty seven, yes. Mm-hmm. So I was arriving three six years after it. Sixty seven and three is seventy six years after it. So so. Newark was still smoldering, if you will. If you drove down Springfield Avenue, there were still buildings that had been destroyed or burnt that were still not, lots that were not cleared. And so the first time I saw it and brought in, you know, and uh, brought in uh, uh, Market Street, I, I think, this is the first time I saw a, a junkie cross the street. It took him like an hour to cross the street. I, I said, "What is that?" You know. So, so, so I don't want to. Rem- I'm saying this because I don't want to give the impression that I was romanticizing Newark. But there was something about the scale. There was something about the. Um, the, the built environment that somehow I just felt more comfortable than living in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. I just felt more relaxed. I, and I always say I fell in love with, with in 1974, a year, I fell in love with Newark. And on some unconscious level, if you look at the paperwork for Algyra that had to do with it incorporating, it says in there that I wanted to raise the profile of Newark. I wanted to change the narrative. I'm saying this stuff in 1974. That that that, that not thinking that Algyra was going to be around for 33 years, but I'm saying this stuff, you know, I mean, in a sense, being prophetic in a sense. Because I was going to show that, you know, I, I just had this, this sense that we were going to show that Newark is not the kind of uh, hole in the wall, if you will. Yeah, it had existed for 300 years before the riots, before there the rebellion. You know. There's no, the rebellion. Rebellion. And so, again, a dynamic um, historical uh, manufacturing center of center of commerce. So you're right. So this idea of you, you saw the bones and you wanted to be part of the sort of the, not resurrection, but the return. Renaissance. The Renaissance. Renaissance. With a small R, because I, 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 want, to, I want us to not confuse it with the capital R Renaissance um, the, in Europe. I mean, I, I went, I went to, I went to, I went to Italy and France, and I it opened my eyes. Um, when I came back, I said, "We need to be careful about using the word Renaissance, you know, over broadly. We really need to be mindful <laughs> that that small R Renaissance." But 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 the way I understood within the context of African American history. What was what went on in Newark? That's why I wanted to I wanted to to correct you on the use of the word riot. Um, the rebellion is because there were circumstances that 
Black people who were fleeing the South experienced here in Newark that were egregious. They were, they were, they were, they were, you know, the way, the, the way things, the way, the, the kind of policing that took place, the very aggressive policing, the inadequate housing, uh, the substandard uh, uh, food, the lack of education, jobs for people who came here, people who arrived here thinking, I want to do something with my life. I'm escaping one situation and coming to a place where there's more opportunity and just to be delusioned. You know, um, we produced Al Jaira for, I think, the, was it the 40th anniversary or 50th anniversary of the rebellion, something called Five Days in July. And it was wrenching. It was horrific. The filmmaker Chuck Schultz and his, and his partner, you know, uncovered footage that was never seen by the public. That, that, and so in some ways, the, the mainstream media was in collusion with communicating a certain image of Black people and the Black community. Um, um, that, was, that was quite re reinforced a lot of stereotypes. We didn't, there were no black snipers. People are too poor to have guns, and and you had a you had a bunch of 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 weekend soldiers firing into people's homes. Um, so 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 anyway, I I, I I the Newark experience was and still is for me the the, the central experience of being in America as somebody who as an immigrant. I love the way you describe that time during there. Cause I grew up in there. My parents came here in the fifties um, from yeah. uh, Philadelphia and from uh, Washington, DC. And um, so I grew up in North Newark, which was a, sort of a battleground. If you were black and you either wanted to leave or return during right. that time. Uh, so I understand when I hear the term stop and frisk, that was my reality growing up yes. in New York. Um, I remember when the um, rebellion began. Right. Um, the, um, the, uh, the guard, the National Guard were actually stationed in my neighborhood in North Newark in Branchbrook Park. And oh, yeah. The old, yeah, the Olmstead Park, the famous Olmstead, one of the famous Olmstead parks. So, you know, you have really described, um, as you said, the conditions that led up to the um, to this incredible um, rebellion and this this uh, this uncovering, as you said, of um, egregious conditions in not only this city but in a lot of American cities of this size yes. so um so thank you so that that takes me to the next question well not the next question but um a couple of questions about um newark and art what was the art scene like when you arrived in newark 
Well, let me do this. Let me just uh, mention that the Five Days in July is a 15-minute, I think, or so, or 16-minute um, uh, film that was installed um, at Al Jazeera as part of its programming commemorating the, I want to say it's the 40th anniversary, but it could be the 15th anniversary of the rebellion. Um, I, I remember Linda Epps was at the New Jersey Historical Society as, as its director. Um, and I remember they did a project that she also got flack for called um, What's Going On, something like that. It was based on a Marvin Gaye title. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And we did this installation. Helen Stummer, who was a photographer, um, had done a social document on um, the ghetto in Newark. She was a white woman who won the confidence of black people. She was in, She was not documenting them as a voyeur, as an outsider. She became... Um, she identified with them as a as a teenage mom, a single teenage mom. She she worked with family. She got them clothes. She got she brought them food, and so there's a kind of humanity about her book, her first book. Um, I mean, she did a uh, called "No Easy Walk." I think that's a, that's a, a that's borrowed from Mandela. But it was no easy walk. If you can get a hold of a copy of No Easy Walk by Helen Stummer. And that was that was the the the, the second installation in the in the um, the gallery uh, at the time, five days in July was done. And Esther Podemsky was the other person who uh, the other director, Chuck Schultz and Esther Podemsky, who was a painter. Um, they they were the ones who created Five Days in July for Aljara. It's it's a it's a powerful piece. It's Thank short, you. but it's punchy. Is that available on either YouTube or is that on somewhere? Yeah, you, should, you, should, you should check YouTube. If you don't find it, um, uh, shoot me an email. I'll try to get it to you. It's, Great. I'd like to uh, include a link on our website for what's yeah. to do with it. Yeah. Just five days until I think that's very, uh, very important. And very, it's very powerful piece. Great. Thank you. Um, um, to, so, so the situation, again, a lot of what we're discussing is not limited to Newark. We need to be mindful of the fact that Newark, Newark was symptomatic of what was going on across America in small cities, all, all over the place. And um, uh, you know, all over the country, and so and so, we in some sense, you know, one of the things I've learned as an immigrant is that you know, there there are differences in where you are in the United States, but in black communities, I think um, one, I think you're relatively safe safe to make some generalizations about what was going on around that time, 1983. That was when, just 10 years after I arrived, you know, um, uh, Aljara started as a 
a workspace for artists of diverse backgrounds um, in a Roseville section of Newark. Mm-hmm. In a third floor walk up, it was 5,000 square feet. And, um, and I, um, you might call it arrogance, uh, but I had the um, the chutzpah, if you will, to sort of incorporate Al Jara as a nonprofit, mm-hmm. sort of build a board, start building infrastructure, and it was never. It was never a cakewalk. It was the neighborhood was challenging. Rose, the Roseville section of Newark, which used to have these incredibly beautiful homes, yeah, that, that, large, that. large houses that have yeah, on Roseville and Orange Street, Roseville Avenue and Orange Street. We were right there on I think Fifth Street, Fifth and Orange, and it, it had now become pretty much. Um, abandoned, ghettoized in many ways. A lot of these houses that were owned by professionals like doctors and lawyers, they, they had left the city after, after, after uh, 67. And so those had become rooming houses. And, you know, um, I mean, uh, Algyra, you would, I would arrive in the morning and um, there would be, you know, empty beer cans and broken bottles on the stairs, on the stoop outside. And I may even see some, I mean, I even have to step over somebody to get into, you know, the front door. But, you know, the cultural institutions that were operating at that time were essentially activists. I mean, I, I you know, they were, they were, they were, you know, I knew, I, you know, I, in terms of the visual arts, I can speak, pretty confidently about the visual arts, but I'm quite sure there were things in the communities that were going on, uh, particularly Afrocentric things, you know, um, drumming and music and, 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 um, and jazz and the clubs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Amiri Baraka and the and the you know the art house and the, the theater. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I was I wasn't in I wasn't involved in that, but the point is, I knew that that was that was happening. Um, uh, and even Aljara had some of the spillover of that kind of uh, Afrocentric or you know cultural expression. Uh, every Sunday, Aljara had at, the, at this 5,000 square feet location uh, um, a, uh, a group called the Maimuna Kita School of West African Art. Maimuna Kita. And they were, they were, there was African dancing. I mean, and, and uh, there was, there was drumming and there were classes. I mean, I've seen Ben Jones, who was a father. Ben Jones used to come sometimes to classes before I even knew about his art. He would come there to classes, and he, he was an incredible dancer. Hmm. Ben Jones, the artist Ben Jones, who is now probably in his late 70s or early 80s, was a fabulous dancer. Mansab K. Musa was also, I think, involved with this. And Mansa. I think Mansa is in many ways 
um, um, underrepresent, unrecognized. Mansake Musa, unrecognized, because I remember talking to Mansake Musa before any plans were made to build out Algyra. And Mansa had brilliant ideas. I mean, he's very um, low key, but but Mansa was a was mentored by Ben, and and um, and so yeah, the, the cultural scene didn't have a a robust contemporary visual arts alternative space, which is the vacuum that Algyra filled. You had the Newark Museum, and the Newark Museum, just to give you a sense of, and, and the Newark Museum is a very complex organization in this sense, that they've been collecting African-American art for a very long time. Some of the early masters, you know, they collected tanner and they collected, you know, they had some early tanners, you know, not maybe not the not the guitar lesson or, you know, but they they were. They had a collect a, enough of a coherent collection that absolves them from, you know. The kind of general perception that mainstream Museums were totally oblivious to black artists, um, but yet, yeah, I think in terms of contemporary art, there was no robust program at the museum. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Now, I was, I'm going to let you. I'm going to say something about my how I saw Algyra when I first was introduced to it. Uh, for me, Algyra represented um, the diversity equity and inclusion that was missing in the art world that I grew up in, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, I attended Cooper Union. I went to arts high school, the first visual and performing arts high school in the country. Uh, I later, as yourself, uh, attended Pratt to get my master's. And during that 70s, 80s, 90s, there was very little mention of African uh, artists of color. So for me, Algyra was the place that was going to correct this. How did you and your team, your gallery team, center team, and board of directors, how did you guys go about correcting this reality of non-inclusion, non-equity, and, and non-diversity? Well, I, I should say a couple of things. That One of the things that happened to me when I arrived in New York City, in part, my... My, my arrival in New York City was prompted by a lecture I saw in Guyana. And the lecture was given by a man who, was, who had run the Studio Museum in Harlem, and it was on Fifth Avenue. I think he ran it for about five years. Ed Spriggs. Ed Spriggs was a photographer, or is a photographer. I hope Ed is alive and well. And he was invited by, um, at the time, uh, there were a number of African-Americans who were working out of Guyana. Many of them had come from Ghana after Nkrumah fell, I believe, and they, and they came to Guyana because at the time, Guyana's president um, 
was a black man, uh, Forbes Burnham. And, um, and so they were able to um, find employment working in the government services. And, you know, they were, they were having an impact on the cultural um, scene in Guyana. And, and I was working with a well-known African-American illustrator who was teaching Guyanese artists how to illustrate children's books. So I did three books for the two children's books for the, for the government. Um, and I worked under the supervision of um, Tom feelings. Tom, of course I've met Tom. Yeah. And so Tom, 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 Tom basically mentored me and, and, but I, I had, I had a real, I had a real problem with illustration and, and, and at the time didn't see illustration as art, but, but I think Tom fixed that because <laughs> I came to respect Tom and I came to respect the fact that not all artists are good illustrators. Illustrators have an incredibly, an incredible ability, good illustrators to tell stories with pictures that all artists don't have that, that that capability. Tom was Tom, so so Tom kind of dispelled that idea, this kind of set, this this notion that illustration was not art, in a sense. So anyway, um, Ed Spriggs did a presentation while he was still the director of, of um, the Studio Museum in Harlem and introduced me to African-American art. At the time, the place for African-American art, everybody was going to the Studio Museum in Harlem. And it was not the Studio Museum of Harlem that we know today was not in Harlem. It was the Studio Museum in Harlem that was that predated, you know, um, um, Dr. Campbell, you know, who is currently, you know, uh, she was she was at work first the Commissioner for Cultural Affairs, and and now I think she runs the the Women's uh, 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 Wellesley. Is it Wellesley? Is it that she's the head of? She's the president of uh, of in Atlanta, I think. Uh, Spellman. Spellman, sorry, yes. So she's the president of Spellman. She, I think she she may have followed Ed Spriggs. Um, uh, I'm not quite sure of that chronology, but but um, uh, so so when I arrived, Ed immediately gave me a space to work in at the Studio Museum in Harlem. What there was an informal, there was an informal artist in resident program. There was no stipend. There was no, you know, I mean, you, you, you got a space and you made art. And so there, the other artists who were there that I remember was um, uh, Leroy Clark, who's a Trinidadian artist, mm -hmm. and uh, Valerie Maynard. Oh, okay. There was also there at the time the founder um, of a, a gallery called Jam, just above Midtown. Sure. And, and, and I think 
was her name Linda Good Bryant, I think? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was doing her thing there, which I wasn't quite sure what it was about. But jam became quite an important, you know, jam became quite an important um, um, gallery for for a minute there in the in the, in the you know in the in the sort of alternative movement. And I met a lot of important people at, at, as a result of being at the Studio Museum in Harlem, where I stayed for you know maybe the greater part of a year okay. because I couldn't support, I couldn't continue to support myself. I was running out of money. And, uh, um, but I mean, I met, that's where I met Benny Andrews. Wow. Wow. At the same time, you know, I was confused about my, I wasn't, I was confused about the direction of my practice as an artist. I was taking classes at, uh, stud- at the art students league. And so it was, it was, you know, and and I don't know what purpose those classes served, but there was something happening at the Studio Museum in Harlem that was vital, and it, that's where I discovered Afrocobo. The whole that whole, you know, Chicago, yeah, yeah, you know. Um, so so, and I had to leave. I had to find work, and I found work in New Jersey, but but. When the opportunity arose after I left Pratt, after I graduated from Pratt in 1980, when the opportunity arose to start something on Orange Street, whether consciously or unconsciously, the Studio Museum in Harlem experience, I, I, didn't, I didn't think of it consciously, was at the back of my head. Right. The thing, though, that I realized, and that, and I, I by then I'd met people like Bisa Washington and Willie Cole. We weren't great friends at, 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 at that point. I mean, our relationship evolved, and Willie had started something called um, Works Gallery. Mm-hmm. But I, re, I, I never. I mean, I think this there was there was a natural inclination for Carlin. And um, uh, for Carl and me to 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 create something that was inclusive, that something resembled the cultural experience that we had growing up in Guyana, that was cosmopolitan, and so we didn't we didn't want to replicate, you know, the Studio Museum in Harlem. We didn't want to specifically say this is a black gallery. And that confused a lot of people. I'm sure it did. Because depending, you know, depending on what exhibition you 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 had installed, the audience would shift. In fact, they were, they, you know, you could have an exhibition one, you know, for two months, and at the opening, it would be ninety percent of the people who showed up, or, or, or would be would be. Like, Artists who didn't have opportunities, lots of women. So the Heresies group helped us to write. You know, this was a women's group. Uh, Emma Amos was part of that group. Emma, really? Wow. Yeah, you- the Heresies. They uh, they published a magazine. You should find Heresies magazine. It was a feminist, a feminist group. And so a lot of those women showed with us, you know, um, and people would, interestingly enough, or, our earliest audience 
came people came on the people came on the subway. The subway stopped two blocks from Algira. Oh yeah. You know, where Algira was on Fifth Street. Right, from the Penn Station. We did, they would take exactly, it. Exactly, exactly, from Penn Station. Yeah. So people would come for openings from New York City. We would get more people at one point from New York City than we would get from Newark. Wow. Well, that's that's the kind of magnet that you created. Exactly. And so, and so, um, and then you would do a show like African-American and Latino artists, um, you know, from the African diaspora or whatever. And then 90% of the people would be black and 10% would be, you know, white people or whatever. And, um, <laughs> and uh, it, it, it got to be so, um, it got to be so, um, such a, such a, such a uncomfortable thing for some people, this kind of, cosmopolitan crowd that back in the day you had answering machines mm-hmm. you know back in the, in the 80s we i had Algeria had an answer machine and uh, you know i remember one time getting a message like what are you guys doing with all those white people up there mm-hmm. you know well victor i want to share something with you on that point i was attending um art basel miami beach uh one of the um panels that included um, Thelma Goldman and um, Golden Golden and the uh, one of the directors of the Tate uh, Modern. Yes. And he said, um, I don't know if any of you know what's going on in the world of art in, you know, in this in this time, but it's very important that you understand that there are a group of people you need to be following, you need to understand where they're doing, what they're doing, how they're doing it. And I'm going to refer to them as Afropolitans. 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 And he said they are from the African diaspora. They are from England. They are from Guyana. They are from Ghana. They are from America. They have degrees, they fly on planes, they own condos all over the world. These are the people who are going to be making the decisions and leading the conversation in art in the early 21st century. And when he said that, I, a good friend of mine, I don't know if you know Ludlow Bailey, um, out of Miami, he runs a group called Kata. I said, I have a term to share with you for your um, reporting on the internet with Root Magazine, and this guy from Tate used this term, Afropolitan. And I, so what you're describing, what you did at Algira, this idea of it's not predictable, it's just global, and global is not local. So you were, you were confusing a lot of people, because the idea of art was, it was either regional, local, regional, or national. And Europe and the rest of the world didn't matter as much other than being very historical or what you uh, um, try to approximate. But you guys were global in the very sense of the word so early. And that's what I think was so exciting. Well, I think I think we were we, we were we were 
pretty conscious of being local and global at the same time. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think we were conscious, of, although we didn't, I didn't know this, this is an interesting story, but we were conscious of being, and Carl in particular, Carl, you know, Carl Hazelwood, who you, you really can't talk about Aljara's early programming or even late programming. Carl was, was the, you know, Carl Hazelwood comes out of a family, um, several generations of Hazelwoods who were judges, attorneys, musicians, people who were involved in the cultural life of Guyana and, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a very deep way. And Carl was for the most part homeschooled. Carl, I usually joke and say Carl is the genius child behind Aljara because Carl wrote this pretty much the framework for Aljara's programmatic agenda. He created the first document, the one-page document of what our programmatic agenda should be. And Carl was the person who with Oakley and Weezer, which fits into this context we're talking about, Afropolitan. Oakley and Weezer is interesting. Oakley and Weezer had one of his first, if not his first, curatorial opportunity at Aljara. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, want you, I, want to, I want to say that again. As quiet as it's kept. And he co-curated an exhibition with Carl. Carl invited him to co-curate an exhibition at Aljara. And the exhibition was in partnership with a project that Pepon Osorio did at the Newark Museum. Pepon Osorio just got, um, he's a MacArthur Fellow, but he also just got a Guggenheim Fellowship. Wow. This is, this is, this is Aljara. Yes, yes. Oakley and Weezer, who became the first, the first African to be the director of the Dennis Biennale. Absolutely, yeah. First black man. With his roots in Newark. His, his, his creative roots in Newark. Exactly. And, and, and so when people talk to me about Newark, you know, people talk to me currently about Newark, about, you know, what we did and what we didn't do. Um, you know, this, this is a reason why the Aljara archive, which is what Cicely and I are working on, is so important. We are trying to retrieve a website which was abandoned. Mm. And we have the next few months until June to find to find where all this stuff is. Because after I left, the thing fell apart. There was no there was no governance group that was paying attention. People, people who people were ignorant of the cultural importance of Aljara, just let it go. And you had a, 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 a director, a successor of mine, who obviously 
that was not his interest. His interest was not about the importance or the legacy that Al Jazeera represented, not just my legacy, but it's Newark's. Right. So you and Sicily are rescuing that. that we're trying to, yeah, we need help because we're, we don't really know how, we've been working on it. We really don't know exactly how, we're trying to figure out how we can bring this archive back into existence. It's got to be somewhere in the cloud, but we're working, we're, we're making phone calls, we're, 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 we're trying to see who hosted it, who, and we last, and, you know, I mean, we've got some information, but we, we, we need some help. Anyway, the point is that that we were presented, I mean, this was, we became the sort of unlikely primary um, space, alternative space for contemporary art, not only in Newark, but I would argue in New Jersey, and we became part of, of, of the, the discourse, the contemporary, the discourse in contemporary art in the region. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were we were cited for excellence by the State Council of the Arts. We were we were for for over I think fifteen years consecutive years. We were uh, cited as a major arts institution by the State Council of the Arts. Um, but you know. Structural, there's structural things that that are responsible for the Studio Museum in Harlem succeeding and Al Jazeera being challenged and not getting the kind of resources or having access to those kinds of resources that would make make it sustainable in the same way a Studio Museum in Harlem is, is sustainable being recognized by the people who have access to resources, being understood. You know, also we had a operating environment was pretty volatile um, 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 after 9-11. Funds fell away. Not down the road, you know, you, we had a financial crisis. Funds fell away. Weathering the crisis, right? Right. And so, so you cannot see, um, I mean, one of the things that I studied was, I studied at, 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 at NYU, and I studied through numerable num, <laughs> workshops, or numerous workshops, and, 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 and you know, I, I came out of the Getty program, the Getty Museum Management program. And, and so you understand the life of an, of an organization just like the life of an individual. It has, you know, it comes into being, it becomes, it starts to creep, it walks, it's, an, it's a young adult. But it's not operating in a vacuum. It's operating as we are in, a, in an environment. And, and, and in that environment, if there are not things that are conducive to its sustainability, it doesn't matter what you do at the end of the day as its director. If, if, if collectively the community or the, 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 the people with access to resources in the community don't feel vested in it, 
It's not sustainable. That applies to your organization, grassroots. It applies to any organization. If and this was played out, Aljar had one of his most prosperous times when I had relationships with black program officers like Janet Rodriguez and Mary Poirier. Once those people from my generation who had who were program people in foundations, once those people retired, there was a new crop of people coming in. And their priorities or their interests were not necessarily the same as the people they succeeded. Absolutely, yeah. As and then, of course, there's 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 the the shifts at the county level and at the city level, and at the you know there are all these. It's a very dynamic. And if you've got us, if if you've got a weak board, and if you've got a you know, also the pipeline. Aljair was a pipeline for, I learned that uh, uh, from Claudine, Claudine Brown, who was at the, uh, uh, the Nathan Cummings Foundation. I used to be so frustrated. I would train people, and in th- three years, two to three years, they would leave because there was no opportunity at a small organization for upward mobility. So people would come straight out to school, come to Aljaira spend two or three years, they learned the, 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 the run of the mill, the run of the, not the run of the mill, they would learn the, uh, the run of things, they would learn how to do things, um, and then they would be ready to go. And I, and I had to, Claudine Brown said to me, Victor, you have to see yourself as part of the ecosystem. Absolutely. You are a feeder institution. You, you, you know, people would end up at NJ Pack or at the Newark Museum or, 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 or as, a, as a, you know, running a cultural affairs department for a county. And so we knew I, I, that gave me a broader understanding structurally of where we were. And we were not going to, there's a, there's a kind of glass ceiling that both glass roots and Algyra will, will, will find. And that glass ceiling, you can't break through as an individual. It has to be something that your governance body, Absolutely. they have to make that happen. So, so I, 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 I think I lost my way a little bit here. No, you didn't lose your way. You, you, you took us exactly where we needed to be to find out again this legacy this right. vision uh, that is not did not stop a couple of years ago. That is ongoing. Yes, uh, by Amy Shakur. Well, Amy Shakur cuts her teeth at Algyra. Absolutely. I and so she she says she said it. She says, "Look, everything I learned. I mean, she's become a cultural affairs director, but she said everything I learned, I learned in Algyra. Yeah, that, that is your legacy. And when I would come to the desk and I'd say, Amy." Um, is that new catalog out yet for the current exhibition? And she said, let me check with Victor to see if we have any more left. I'll see if we can set one aside for you. That young woman, as you said, is leading this idea in Newark. Uh, again, this legacy of Newark that you are part of the incredible foundation for, of uh, this art activism, this art as uh, the way art changes minds, the way art educates. All right. So again, um, for me, it's it's a it's a journey. It's an evolution, as you say. It's it's organic. It 
lives beyond us and after us. And uh, again, this legacy of Algyra, your ongoing legacy of, of um, art and activism and, and cultural um, inclusion is, is, is really magnificent. I have another- the community because I want you to, I want to, I want to say this, that again, I, earlier in our conversation, I talked about first nurture mm-hmm. and I grew up in a home, a household in which, um, you know, my younger, my younger brother was adopted when he was probably six weeks old. No, nobody wanted him. And, um, and we had my father, turned my mom's living room um, into a business school every evening for young, uh, 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 young women and young men who wanted to develop skills to get entry-level jobs because my, my dad came back from the war, thus my name, Victor. Um, and I, you know, um, and he was a communications uh, 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 specialist in the war. He he knew Morse code, and he knew um, shorthand, and and he was, you know, he had over 120 words in short in shorthand that he could write and uh, typing. And so in our house, at any time, you had, you know, four to six typewriters, and you had, and so he had a, a kind of school after he finished he he worked he was a postmaster mm-hmm. and so most times we lived in at, above the post office and um he would turn the living room into a school for poor for young women and young and, and young men and 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 so that was the first algyra exactly and if you didn't have the the if you didn't have the the, the, the whatever the, the the 10 bucks a month for the classes, you could still come. These were young women who, some of them c- came, they didn't have shoes. Wow. By the time they left, they were ready for the secretarial pool. There you go. So you, you, you brought this model home to Newark from Guyana. <laughs> yes. It's an ethos. It's a, it's a, it's an ethos. Combined with combined with everything else. And, you know, it's no different for Carl. You know, Carl, you know, I didn't know Carl and Gianna, but I knew of Carl's work. Carl was precocious. And I remember going to an exhibition at the American Embassy had a gallery. And it was Carl was maybe 15 years old. And I saw this abstract painting and I was like, and I remember the name up to now. It was called Abstract Painting. The title was Floating Object. And um, it was like Carl Hazelwood. And I said, like, who is this Carl Hazelwood? And um, I don't know that Carl was in the, was in the country because, uh, you know, he was here probably. And um, because his, his mom brought him here because he was one of the first people to get um, open heart surgery. Um, this, this, uh, uh, I think it was South African doctor. I'm not sure of the name. I don't know if it was Debakey or whatever. It was an experimental surgery did. And, and Carl had a, like a hole in his heart or something. And his mom brought him here to the United States, I think in Texas. And, um, 
he survived. I mean, he survives until today. And so he, he, a lot of Carl's education is homeschooling. I mean, he has a master's from Hunter, but a lot of, the, I mean, he's he spent so much time reading. Carl is really, really, he was bright beyond his year. He, he, wrote, he wrote an essay at Pratt when he was an undergraduate. This is embarrassing. He wrote an essay and, and the professor said, there's no way you could have written this essay. And his mom had to show up at the university to say, what do you mean that my son didn't write this essay? That's how, that's how brilliant he was. So, yeah. And, you know, it was an interesting, it was interesting. My, 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 his mom also learned shorthand from my dad. <laughs> you guys are connected. But we didn't know all of this stuff until, yeah. Yeah, we didn't know all this stuff. I, 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 I want to ask you this. Um, yes. I wanted to ask you this earlier, but I'm going to ask you it still. What is it about Nork, in your opinion, that produces world-renowned artists like Willie Cole, Barbara Kruger, Judith Bernstein, Charles Gaines, and William Popel? Do what not forget, do not forget Philip Roth. Well, I'm talking about the visual artists. I'm not talking, okay. we, we, would, we would have to get into Queen Latifah. We'd have to get into Wayne Shorter. With oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, of course. Now, um, Sarah Vaughan. I'm talking about the visual arts. Because as you said, Newark is rich in all of the arts. But for visual artists like the ones I mentioned, what do you think it's, what is it about Newark that you think provides the environment or the impetus or inspiration for these artists? You know, I, 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 I shouldn't, I shouldn't tend to overgeneralize, uh, you know, I don't know, but what I know is that Halsey street, Halsey street was at one time, the place you came from New York to buy art. Halsey Street, wow. Halsey Street had several, I mean, think of Halsey Street just in terms of how intimate it is. Mm -hmm. Think of Halsey Street and some of those places that have step downs, you know, you can walk down, run you a little bit of the, the you know, Brooklyn. Sure. And then some of the spaces are just conducive to having galleries. And I think Halsey Street was a place where you could buy a Picasso print, a Matisse print, a Stella. You know, I think one of the people who might be, um, I think the, I think there's a history that you could probably dig up at uh, at um, the Newark Library. Okay. Noel, Noel Williams, I think, who is a researcher there, who came through Aljari Merge. <laughs> of course. Of course <laughs> <he did. laughs> she 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 has done some fantastic work since she's finished her masters at Rutgers, Rutgers digging up mostly activist stuff around feminism and 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 but but but, but generally the black community um and i'm quite sure you know one of the people who loved Algyra and um, remembered Algyra in his will was uh, William Dane. Oh, yes. I, I, 
actually worked at the um, Newark Library in the Art Stacks, and he was my super. He was my second supervisor. Yeah, and so and so and so and so 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 there's there's there there's a there's a kind of lost history about the visual arts um, in Newark at a time. Um, you know, I mean, I think, I think the sense, I think my sense is, and, and, and this, I'm going here now just on, on a kind of sense. This is not important, supported by any kind of research, but my sense is that, that um, as an incubator, you know, Newark was a place that w- was, was culturally forward, that it was, you know, with, but look, you got people like Dana. Dana is is is, is the kind of thinking behind Newark with, with a Dana, the Dana Library, Dana who started the Newark Museum on the top floor of the Newark Public Library. I mean, the entire the whole the idea of library science being revolutionized by a Dana. Yeah, I, I love your term culturally forward. Yes. <laughs> and 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 so one would think that he would attract mm-hmm. people around gallerists, curators. And again, I'm saying I'm, 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 I'm speculating here that 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 the idea of forming a, a, a museum, the idea of 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 and, you know, Forward in the sense that these libraries, this whole library system in Newark was created to be something that was open to the community. Absolutely. One of the things that attracted me to Express Newark, because I, I Express Newark was was the mission, the mission to bring the community into concert with the university. Mm-hmm. And Rutgers has got a notorious history for being in Newark, but not of Newark. As the arts have been. Exactly. Not inclusive. So, 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 right. So, so Dana, I think, is somebody that we need to revisit in terms of, 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 not just the literary uh, arts, but the visual arts, because he, he was the person, I think, that drove the genesis or the beginning of the Newark Museum. The Newark Museum, in a sense, one could, may argue, might have started on the top floor of the Newark Public Library. Right. Okay. And, and you know, that that place, that, that archive that you worked in. I mean, it's. I mean, I've had conversations with Bill Dane where he bought Picasso prints and etchings for a couple of hundred dollars, and I'm, I'm, I'm I mean, those things. I can't imagine what those things are worth now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He was amazing working there. The print shop that we had behind the the library. That they did letterpress. They did all of the signage. Exhibitions at new exhibitions every month. It in itself was a living um, museum and gallery. Yes. Now, as you said, that's where this is. This is where we grew up. This is again the the first visual and performing arts high school in the country. Arts high school started in 
Yeah. So, well, as 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 as, uh, as you know, this was this was pretty. You know, I would have to. I would start from the assumption that this was pretty fertile ground. You know, um, it, you know, there was pretty fertile ground. You know, and so that whole area from, you know, beginning with um, the Newark Public Library, the museum, heading down Halsey Street. It's not hard for me to imagine that gallerists would make. You know, as a gallerist that I would see, look, the first time I ever had an exhibition in Newark was at City Without Walls. Yes. And City Without Walls was located um, on Halsey, but I knew it. Oh, before Lincoln Park. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Lincoln Park is either the third or fourth place that it was located. Were they also in the... Uh, uh, the um... Gateway. Gateway, yes. Was that the first incarnation, or is that the no, 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 no. That was like that was perhaps the third incarnation. Third. They had two, they had two places in Gateway. At one point, they were upstairs on the on the you know, sure. um, um, on the, the the not street level but above. Then they came down to street level, but before that, they were they were on Halsey Street ah. between Raymond Boulevard and. What is that? I don't know if it's commerce, but going going um, going south, um, uh, they were they were above what is now a coffee shop, and um, it was a it was a robust. I mean, they predated Algira, but 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 they never engaged the community in the same way. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if, in fact, I remember at one point Wayne Braffman, who was the chairman of the board for for um, Wayne Braffman was the chairman of the board for City Without Walls, and he was the CEO for Symphony Hall. Ah, okay. His wife was Roberta Crane. She uh, she was at one point executive 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 director of City Without Walls, and she followed another young woman by the name of Colleen Torton, who I knew as executive. Um, he called me up and said, uh, "I want to offer you a job, but you have to close Algira down." <laughs> Getting rid of the competition, huh? <laughs> we were probably in our fifth year. And so, so, I, I, and I see, he, he said, you can make some real money working for City Without Walls. And I said, well, what does that, what does that look like? And I think he said something to me like $10,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, thank you, um, but no thank you. And, um, um, and I always remember that, but I mean, Wayne is still around. I see his email on Facebook sometimes, but I thought it was interesting that there was an offer to shut Al down because we were, we were, you know, it's, it was, it's amazing how we were perceived. Bill Strickland, um, who, uh, the CEO of uh, Manchester Craftsman Yale and Bidwell Arts Center said, was hired by the New Jersey State Council of the Arts to do an assessment of Algira. And he said, 
the problem that Algeria has, I think, I don't know if she framed it as a problem, was that it had a bigger public persona than it actually than its actual infrastructure. Right. That the kind of the kind of ambitious program programming it did sent the message that it was really larger than it was. And in some ways that worked for us. That was a good thing. That attracted funding. Um, um, although the delivery system was pretty, it was pretty weak. Delivery system, infrastructure, meaning, you know, the board. What, what, it's tough. It's tough because a, a lot of, yeah, a lot of people, a lot of particularly African-Americans didn't, young African-Americans coming up in the corporate America they were not interested in Algeria's board. They want to be on the board of the Newark Museum. They want to be on the board of NJ Pack. They want to be on the board of the Newark New Jersey Symphony. They want to, you know, one person who came on my board who was not African American, he said, you know, I like the work you do. That's why I want to be on your board. I could be on any board I want to be on. He was a young, he's still a friend. He was a young vice president of Peru. He said, you know, I, if I want to be, I can be on the board of a mainstream institution. But I, so it was interesting having somebody who was not of color telling me that. But at the same time, young executives of color, they, were, they, they didn't want to even be close to Algeria. Well, Victor, fortunately, that has changed. Yeah. Fortunately, that has changed. And I know exactly the climate that you were, that you're referring to, sort of first generation corporate, I have business cards, I'm on top of the world. Millennials of the 21st century absolutely understand the importance of culture, the importance of social justice, the importance of their role in making this a better place. And fortunately, you and I have spanned two centuries. We have witnessed um, phenomenal uh, change in both attitudes and in um, ideas about art and the power of art. And I want to thank you for making that perfectly clear to people who probably didn't understand it at the time and on reflection said, that's where I got that idea, that art is powerful, that art changes minds. And Algyra was easily, for me, for the past 35 years, that local place that afforded me a very global um, outlook and um, exposure. Uh, I remember commuting from New York when I got my first job in New York and coming through the new uh, Prudential uh, Gateway. And there you were in the lobby having an art auction. And I said, an art auction in the lobby of a high rise who is this guy and fortunately i got to meet you <laughs> to know you and to count you as a great friend and colleague so victor i want to thank you for sharing your time your experiences and your inspiring acts of cultural inclusion and disruption be well and be safe well thank you thank you thank you for the opportunity for um sharing with you some of the Algeria story and um, stay tuned. We are, are morphing into the Algeria archive, which I hope will be of, um, we, 
what should be invaluable to, to future scholarship, to students who are interested in the cultural history of Newark, and, um, and to the general public. Well, please keep us updated. I will, I promise you here on this podcast that we will post the uh, update and the conclusion of this incredible research that you're doing and, and help you promote this, uh, this history of um, Algyra. It's, it's amazing. And uh, I'm, uh, again, very honored to have this time to spend with you to find out not only about Algyra, but about Halsey Street and, <laughs> and, and you're being one of the first probably um, artists and residents at the Studio Museum for a year. Uh, it's, been, it's been amazing. So we may have to do part two. I don't know. This this may not be enough for, for, for our audience. Well, well we, we, we should think about that because at some point we should talk about the great Frank Bowling and the fact that Frank, that, that, that Algyra really... Uh, started um, uh, uh, put some 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 wind under the wings of Sir Frank that led to him being knighted that led to him being uh, right now realizing his his uh, his dream to have a one person exhibition at the Tate and we should at some point we should talk about that that odyssey to be continued absolutely three four bye bye. Tune in next time for another conversation with our guest who will share their Newark, New Jersey cultural journey. If you'd like to share your Newark, New Jersey story, go to our website and submit your unique journey on our contact page. I'm your host, Roger Tucker. I look forward to sharing these fascinating Newark, New Jersey conversations with you sometime soon. So long and be well.